The following message is brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. To learn more about the Ezra Institute's mission to advance the Lordship of Christ, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca. Well, good evening to you. The hardest thing about being a public speaker, and I've been doing this now for uh, uh, over 20 years, I know I don't look old enough, but... uh, is living up to your introduction. So I hope you won't be disappointed this evening, but I do want to thank Paul for the very warm uh, welcome and introduction. And uh, to uh, return the uh, compliment, it really uh, has been uh, a very pleasant surprise to both meet Paul and and get to know him just a little bit. I think we first formally met at the CLI, although I'd heard about the ministry and the work that uh, the Homeschool Legal Defense Association here is doing. And I was deeply in, impressed and uh, feel privileged and honored to be asked to be here. So thank you for having me. And uh, you really are a, a critical ministry in Canada today. Last time I was in Montreal was uh, last year f- to uh, speak to uh, doctors and dentists, actually, at the Christian uh, Medical and Dental Society National Conference. Slightly different context today there. I was talking about the Christian mandate the priestly calling of the medical profession. I hope you already all know the priestly and Levitical calling of education. And so what I want to do in these uh, two brief sessions I have with you uh, today and tomorrow morning is to talk about the Christian mandate to educate. One might say, well, we all know that's why we're here. There is a Christian mandate to educate, educate. and in that sense, I know I'm speaking to the choir, and actually for somebody in my work and the things that I'm usually doing in uh, culture wars programs and so forth, it's actually nice to preach to the choir sometimes, so I'm kind of appreciative of that this uh, week. It's good to preach to the choir sometimes, but it's good to be reminded of the distinctive and the importance of what we're doing and why it is distinctive and why it is important. Uh, I do have brought a few resources. Actually, my dad is just down the front with me. He traveled with me uh, to, to Montreal. Had the first time in Montreal, isn't it, Dad? And uh, my parents were missionaries in uh, Pakistan, working in education for 16 years. And I usually travel with an associate, so periodically I get to bring my dad. So his name is Michael. Feel free to chat with him. We have brought a few resources. And uh, if you are Dutch or Scottish, you'll be pleased to know that there is some free stuff on the table. Um, and I'm both, actually, so I can say that. Uh, and uh, we have got some journals we'd love you to pick up uh, uh, afterwards. It was John Milton in his work uh, uh, on education who said, the end of learning, the end then of learning is to repair the ruins of our first parents by regaining to know God aright And out of that knowledge, to love him, to imitate him, to be like him. Let me say that again. This was John Milton, the great Puritan. The end then of learning is to repair the ruins of our first parents by regaining to know God aright. And out of that knowledge, to love him, to imitate him, to be like him. That really is the ultimate objective of Uh, Christian education. It was T.S. Eliot who observed concerning education what is 
plainly evident when you think about it. He said this, we derive our theory of education from our philosophy of life. The problem turns out to be a religious problem, end quote. We derive our philosophy of education, our theory of education, from our philosophy of life. The problem turns out to be a religious problem. Now, what I want to do this evening is talk a little bit about the religious character of education, and then tomorrow explain a little bit more, talk a little bit more about the myth of neutrality in education in terms of the content of education. So tonight, the context of education, and tomorrow, the content of education. Now, given the fact that education is a fundamentally religious challenge, and throughout church history until very recently, Christians had seen education as a primary avenue for applying the reign of Christ. After all, the gospel is the proclamation of the kingdom of God, the good news about the kingdom of God. So we learn in the New Testament that it is called the gospel of the kingdom. It's about the reign of Jesus Christ. And the early church and Christians down through the centuries saw education as one of the primary fields, avenues, areas in which the reign of Christ was to be promoted. People don't know history too well generally today, even Christians, and often have not reflected on this key arena for building a Christian world and life view. Now, with biblical faith actuating Christians in the past and the centrality of Scripture, Christianity, in particular Reformed Christianity, led to an incontrovertible advance in literacy, in printing, in the founding of schools and universities. And I could bore you to tears with stories about which schools and universities were established when throughout Christian history. The Puritan age in particular was a remarkable period for this when schools like Harvard University and Durham University and elementary education, Christian education, John Knox's national education in Scotland, this was central to Christian thinking. It would have been unthinkable to Christians in earlier centuries to uh, send their children for a pagan, humanistic education. Unthinkable. Our Christian forebears saw that all knowledge was an integrated whole under God, both the revelation of God in his creation and in scripture, and everything was to be studied and understood in the light of the foundation of God's word. They didn't divide up the secular and the sacred. They didn't divide up the spiritual and the material. They saw them all as under God and informed by the Word of God. Listen to one of the early rules of Harvard College in the United States, which made this plain. And I quote, let every student, this is one of their rules, let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. John 17, 3. And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning, end quote. And that was at the foundation of Harvard. For Christian parents then, we have a particular privilege 
Because we have been brought into the kingdom of God, and we're partakers of the covenant of grace, and so we have a double responsibility by right of both God's creation of us and his redemption of us to provide our children with a Christian education. You would honestly think that if you uh, explain this to an average believer today, there would be warm and hearty applause and thanks and a good pat on the back and... Where's the nearest Christian school or when can I start homeschooling? And yet most of you know that isn't the case. It's not the case in the churches. It's very difficult to get pastors to support home education and Christian education, even in our churches today. And this is largely because, well, there's a number of reasons, but one of the key reasons is that there is a failure to recognize education as an inescapably religious task growing out of our philosophy and theology of life that is inescapably grounded in religious assumptions. It is either the ignorance of an untaught church or simply faithlessness and disobedience to God's word on the part of many Christians in the West today when they refuse to acknowledge that the context of their children's education and the content of their education is religious And their young ones are either being instructed in the truth or indoctrinated in anti-biblical premises. The religious character and function of education has been pointed out numerous times by non-evangelical, non-Christian thinkers. Perhaps one of the most noted of all Canadian philosophers, George Grant, highlighted the relationship between religion and education and said there's no escape from religious assumptions and therefore religious indoctrination. This is what he said. And I quote now from his book, Technology and Empire. Listen closely. The origin of the word religion is, of course, shrouded in uncertainty, but the most likely account is that it arises from the Latin to bind together. It is in this sense that I intend to use it. That is, as that system of belief, whether true or false, which binds together the life of individuals and gives to those lives whatever consistency of purpose they may have. Such a use implies that I would describe liberal humanists or Marxists as religious people. Indeed, that I would say all persons, insofar as they are rational beings, are religious. Indeed, the present controversy is not concerned with whether religion should be taught in schools, but rather with what should be the content of the religion that is so taught. It is perfectly clear that in all North American state schools, religion is already taught in the form of what may be best called the religion of democracy. That the teaching about the virtues of democracy is religion and not political philosophy is clearly seen from the fact that the young people are expected to accept this on faith and cannot possibly at their age be able to prove the superiority of democracy to other forms of government if indeed this can be done. The fact that those liberals who most object to any teaching about the deity are generally most insistent that the virtues of democracy be taught should make us aware that what is at issue is not religion in general, but the content of the religion to be taught. End quote. Now, that's a very long-winded way of saying that all education is religious, It is inescapably so, and our children, whatever their educational context, are being 
uh, instructed in or indoctrinated into a particular worldview and religious perspective. In that sense, this is non-controversial amongst educational philosophers, and yet it's a controversial thing to say to Christians. <laughs> the secular philosophers will comment on this reality. One reformed critic who was instrumental in the defense of Christian schools in the United States in the last century agrees with this analysis. He says, education has always been a religious function of society and closely linked to its religion. When a state takes over the responsibilities for education from church or from Christian parents, the state has not thereby disowned all religions, but simply disestablished Christianity in favor of its own statist religion, usually a form of humanism, end quote. So at the very heart, actually, of the religious nature of education is the question that we're seeing coming up constantly now in uh, not just the curriculum, but in the political questions that are going through Parliament and Senate, is what is the nature of man? What is the nature of man? This is one of the fundamental things that we are teaching our children. The doctrine, doctrine of man is a faith postulate, and it shapes the character of society and education generally. And we're going to be educating, conditioning children in terms of a view of their nature and the role in life that their nature gives them. So the question is, what is their nature and what is the goal of their conditioning? Today, the state-sanctioned view in the public schools is that human beings are highly advanced animals, hairless apes. And along with pagans like Plato, we are also allegedly political animals. So we're just biological animals in the bare sense of the term, and we're political animals. And according to modern neo-pagan educational doctrine, we have evolved by chance from the void and can ascertain no ultimate meaning or purpose beyond what we ourselves can determine and decide for ourselves, which means that meaning in life is ephemeral. It's not something objective or absolute. It's something that's constantly shifting and changing. Now, education and the social order have returned basically today in our Western context to an essentially Greek pagan starting point. As a religious faith, essentially, in education today, there is, it is held that there is no triune and sovereign God over man who's made in God's image, and no source of authority outside of us by which we are to be governed. The mind of man allegedly participates in the becoming of cosmic evolution. And so the politicians or the, um, the feminist social theorists and the Foucauldian theorists talk about being progressives. And they have their web of oppression and so forth. And they show how they, tell, they talk of history as a story of oppression. And how we need to move the oppressors, that's white, male, middle class, Christian, middle, uh, middle income men, uh, from the center, the core of the, the uh, as the center of oppression in Western society to the very edge and move those on the margins to the very center. We're told increasingly then that this mind that participates in cosmic evolution, which means everything's changing and so we're therefore progressive, 
Such a person does not need God to know the facts. Every person can independently interpret reality for themselves. But in such a context of wits, that is to say, while you've got an interpretation of reality, I've got an interpretation of the reality, Joe Bloggs has their interpretation of reality, Quebec has theirs, Ontario has theirs, Nova Scotia has theirs, ad nauseum. In such a contest, how can you have unity in the social order? You have to replace, you must replace, the divine source of authority with some basis for unity. And our answer in in the modern world since Hegel has been the state. The state. And thus we return to the pagan Greek philosopher's vision. The state becomes the basic institution and the essentially educational institution. That's why homeschoolers are having problems and having to have people like Paul Farris defend them in the courts. Is because the state today sees itself as the educational institution. It must replace, if God's authority is gone, how do you bind How do you bind a social order together and provide social unity and cohesion if everybody can interpret reality as they see fit? Education is then the vehicle of state activism by which the political animal, the child, is molded to adopt the state's vision of the future. And this naturally leads to the notion that since the state is the locus of authority guiding the process of becoming In the child that's a product of nature, it also must be a saving institution. People can only be saved and redeemed from their problems and difficulties by the state and primarily by the education of the state. In order to save people from themselves and their ignorance, the state and its educational apparatus becomes a redeeming order. Which means we're seeing overtly today how the classroom is the new pulpit. The curriculum, the new Bible, even if it is being written by people charged with making child pornography. The state educators are the new priesthood. State education becomes the new cure-all for sin, crime, emotional and mental health problems, social disintegration, economic disparity. It basically means social salvation through education. This is where all the hopes are placed. It's therefore no surprise to find that when you turn to the 10th point of Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, you read a demand for free state schools. Because all utopias of this sort have as their only means whereby society can be controlled and where nature can reach its goal, education and, of course, the law. Clearly then, education is a religious endeavor, and you cannot have a neutral stance toward education. And this is my conversation with pastors and Christian leaders almost endlessly when the subject of education comes up. This is the issue I have to deal with time and again. You cannot have a neutral stance with respect to education. Today I'm talking about the apparatus of education. Education has plunged downward into humanism in Canada and the West for decades. I'm not as familiar with what has gone on in Quebec, 
but certainly in Ontario since Egerton Ryerson, the chief superintendent of education for Ontario from 1844, described Christianity as the all-pervading principle of Canadian life, we've seen some fairly significant changes. Having begun firmly in Christian foundations where teachers were expected until the late 60s, according to Ontario's McKay Committee in 1969, to, quote, bring home to pupils as far as their capacity allows the fundamental truths of Christianity and their bearing on human life and thought. Can you believe that? By the 1980s, The Canadian court's guns were turned on what was left of Bible reading and prayer in the public schools. And the Christian faith is now banished. On December 6th, 1990, according to Michael Wagner, the Ontario Ministry of Education issued a memorandum offering all public schools, ordering all public schools to end any indoctrination in a religious faith. Regulations governing education were changed accordingly. The era of Christianity in Ontario's public schools was over. Now, of course, the meaning of the demand to end indoctrination in a religious faith meant the repudiation of Christianity in favor of indoctrination in a different faith, the faith of humanism. So to transform the course of the future, the minds of the young have to be regained by Christians today captivated by Christ, by his word, at the familial, the local, the private level, and this involves the necessary recovery of home education and Christian education on a distinctly Christian foundation. Now let me just talk a little bit more about the myth of neutrality in the purpose of education. What I tried to uh, describe a few moments ago is that humanistic thought assumes or presupposes a cosmos of autonomous, self-generated, mindless facts of which you are a part. That is, there are meaningless bits of reality coming up from the void. The facts are meaningless because from atoms to antelopes, There is no sovereign creator. There's no predestinating God who is distinct from the universe. And therefore, there is no overarching design plan that precedes existence and history. There's no creator. Therefore, there's no design plan. There's no ultimate teleology that can be discovered. I've often illustrated this in the context of debates on the existence of God as a a join-the-dot a connect-the-dot puzzle that children used to do before Nintendo and, and uh, Game Boys and all of that kind of thing that I used to do when I was a child, which is, to, in part, teaching children to draw and recognize shapes. You have on a page a series of dots, sometimes with numbers next to them, and as the child joins the dots, the picture emerges. It might be a car or a house or a giraffe, but whatever it is, they discover the author's intention. They discover the meaning, the relationship between the dots. Now, if you imagine from the humanistic perspective, the atheistic perspective, the world is just an an endless sea of dots, of facts, of particulars coming out of the void. But there is no designer of the puzzle. There is no numbering to show you how to connect reality so that the meaning can be discovered. 
There is no meaning to discover in such a worldview. You can only create one for yourself, and then everybody else has the right to create their own. It's the Christian worldview that allows us to connect the dots so that the meaning of reality is discovered. We discover God's meaning. That's what knowledge is. Reality for the non-believer in education is impervious to interpretation. That's why education today isn't about learning in the state system. It's about releasing from the child the inherent potential of the cosmos by a child-centered creativity. You don't civilize and train a child now. You don't even teach grammar. I wasn't taught grammar in school. I was that experimental generation. Because there can be no rules in a godless universe. No ultimate rules that combined our interpretation of reality. Why do you think we are uh, saying to children today there are 7 to 14 gender identities? Oh, because gender, sexuality, on this view, is just a social construct. If I think I feel like a woman, uh, then I am one. Now, of course, they don't escape God's creation in saying that, do they? Because when, they, when somebody says, well, I identify with that particular sexuality, you're still having to say something concrete about that sexuality, that sexual identity. But with respect to humanity, the human person has no definitive essence that precedes experience in the world. There's no God-given definition of personhood. The facts are therefore uncreated, undirected, and unrelated to any other fact until I relate them or you relate them. And therefore, they are, to all intents and purposes in humanistic education, neutral. Neutral. The term neutral comes from the Latin neuter, meaning neither one thing nor another. A neutered man is a eunuch because he is, in, a, in the fullest sense of the term, no longer fully a man, fully male, but he's not female. The term has since come to mean an unbiased position or an unwillingness to take sides, but it's clear from the very origin of the concept that an allegedly neutral position concerning education logically entails beliefs about reality that I've just described. It's a metaphysical worldview that undergirds the idea of neutrality. This fact can mean what you want it to mean. You go and look at art today, what does it mean to you? No concrete meaning there. Go to a theater production, how did it make you feel? What was the meaning you give it? What gender do you feel like? Because there is no objective, God-ordained reality in such a perspective. For the Christian, though, reality can't be neither one thing nor another if it's created and governed by God. Thus, an ostensibly neutral or unbiased position in education is an illusion. And this is at the heart of the purpose of education, just like the content of education. The purpose of education cannot be neutral either. Why are you educating your child in the home? Why are you giving them a Christian education? All education has a purpose in view which presupposes a direction, a teleology. And it is again obvious that education as a vision within society cannot be to no purpose. And state education today is not to no purpose. There's a very deliberate purpose behind it. It's to create actually useful, ignorant people for the state. 
That's the purpose of its social-political engineering, not education. It'll be helpful to explore for a few moments then, a little further, this religious purpose. The terms liberal and liberty are both derived from the Latin liber for free. And from the ancient world to the modern West, the liberal arts education has meant education for the purpose of freedom. Liberal arts, the art of freedom. But what makes a person free? What is the ground of a person's freedom? Philosophical progressivism in education with roots in figures like Horace Mann and John Dewey, which shaped the course of public education in North America, has held that true freedom is liberation from the past, from authority, from revealed truth, and ultimately from God himself. That's freedom. Freedom in this view is not the result of salvation in Christ. What's that great scripture we often refer to as Christians? You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. To deny this approach, though, to education, the secular approach today, has meant coming under censure. You're aggressive, you're reactionary, you're draconian, you're incompetent, you're damaging the health of your child, unless you buy into this statist model of education. This utopian freedom, it has been held, will be realized, freedom as man sees it, outside of Christ, by nurturing loyalty to the state and realizing free expression for the individual, which they ultimately believe will usher in some kind of golden age. That's why the emphasis on state education. Here, the locus of freedom is the state, not God in Jesus Christ. Now, the issue of liberty then... The art of freedom isn't self-explanatory. People use terms like justice and liberty and freedom. We in North Americans, we're always talking about liberty. We don't even know what we mean. You know, we're we're the defenders of freedom. We're fighting for freedom, so we're just going to bomb everyone. What is liberty? What does it mean? What does it actually look like? Well, It certainly has to be defined, and for the Christian West, it is freedom under God and his law in Jesus Christ. That was the nature of the Western concept of freedom. The dominant view today is the freedom of necessity. That sounds like a contradiction, and it sort of is, but this is the way they understand this. The state expresses the freedom of nature. So the way that historically the political philosophers, especially since Hegel, but certainly since the French Revolution, looked at uh, the state is that it's the uh, nature, it world spirit, if you like, whatever uh, rational principle there may be out there, is finding its uh, locus of authority and fullest expression in and through the state. The, the general will, the state expresses the will of nature. And nature is determination, right? It's, it's, it has a determined end. You cannot, the idea of evolution is that even if you can't predict its path, it's going where it's going. It's, it's determinism. So there is this idea of the necessity or the freedom of necessity, which is expressed by the state. And this plan of nature is discerned by the elite bureaucracy, which knows what's best for you and your children. They discern this plan. They embody, actually, the will of nature, cosmic evolution. 
Increasingly in, our, in the Western context, this is having overtly pagan uh, terms applied. A very religiously pagan terminology is being employed today. But liberty can't be identical with anarchy or license because you being free, uh, even in the Christian world order, does not mean that uh, you can do whatever you want. Freedom doesn't mean that, does it? I mean, if, if I'm free to steal from you, you're not free to possess your goods in peace. You can't leave anything out. You have to lock everything away. It's clear that law, though, cannot legitimately be identified in an ultimate sense with any institution because law is a universal aspect of the human condition, our existence in God's created order of the revealed will of God. What's happened in our culture is we've reduced law to a human institution, to an aspect of the state itself as the source and ground of law, and that has been steadily eroding liberty. Why? Because liberty has historically been grounded in the West on our ability to appeal to a higher authority than the state. A law above the state's law. An authority above the law of an elitist bureaucracy. That's the nature of freedom, that we have an appeal beyond it. This was what actually the the fight against the divine right of kings and, um, uh, and uh, royal absolutism in the 17th century was about, that there was an appeal above the king himself to the law of God, which the king must be subject to. That's why Queen Elizabeth, in her oath of office, the coronation, swore to uphold the law and gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why the president of the United States takes the oath of office on the Bible, used to be open to Deuteronomy 28 on a closed Bible today. Liberty is steadily destroyed and tyranny takes root when there is no appeal beyond the state, when the state becomes the source of sovereignty and the savior of human beings. And do you know what the the word tyrant means? You look it up in a dictionary, but the original definition of tyrant was rule without God. Rule without God. God. Man-made laws become the pragmatic instrument by which the bureaucracy enforces policy to protect itself, not the interests of justice and truth for everyone. So unless law, liberty, life, and truth have a transcendent source in the God of Scripture, human institutions steadily claim to incarnate these things in themselves, which undermines freedom, which is why we're in the battle we're in today. The preamble to the Canadian Charter is of no relevance legally. Now, Paul Farris may be able to contradict me on, me on that, but that's what I've read. That you can't, it's meaningless to appeal to it in the courts. It's a meaningless preamble. And that God is not defined. So, the goal becomes then, state control's goal becomes little more than people control as the new purpose of education. Freedom is what the state says it is. Freedom is what the state defines it to be. Marriage, gender are what the state define them to be. That's why these things are happening. The massive emphasis then on state education over the last century is an aspect of the belief that the human mind is a neutral consciousness or apparatus, a clean slate to be written on, not uh, expressive of a mind and will that is in rebellion against God that needs to be governed and civilized and trained and equipped. The human person is thus seen as malleable, transformable in terms of the environment. The state says it will provide that environment in its educational structures. 
In Ontario, Canada, for example, many state visionaries saw the creation of compulsory state education not simply as a means to reducing vagrancy and crime, which they thought it would, but as a means of transforming society as a whole. Archibald McCullum, an influential teacher in Ontario in the late 19th century, represents the arguments very effectively for compulsory state education. This is what he says, quote, Society has suffered so cruelly from ignorance that its riddance is a matter of necessity and by the universal diffusion of knowledge alone can ignorance and crime be banished from our midst. In no other way can the best interests of society be conserved and improved than by this one remedy, the compulsory enforcement of this great boon, the right of every child to receive that education which will make him a good, loyal subject, read, prepared to serve his country in the various social functions which he may be called on to fulfill during his life and prepare him through grace for the life to come for the Christian readers in the 19th century. Now, grace for the afterlife is an appendix there. It was tagged on, but the clear emphasis here is the creation of loyal subjects for the state whose functions the child will in time be called upon to fulfill. God's purpose, God's word, God's law do not feature in this vision of education. And their belief is that this diffusion of knowledge by the state will banish ignorance. It will banish crime once it's been enforced. How's the 150-year-old experiment going? 42% functional illiteracy in Canada. Juvenile delinquency, criminality off the charts, drug addiction, alcohol abuse, academic failure, breakdown of the family. Marvelous great boon, this plan of salvation. Our current condition in our major cities, the state of our public schools, despite over the century of this pseudo-soteriological education, makes McCullum's grandiose claims, however well-intentioned, laughable. It is therefore impossible to see the project of education and its apparatus as neutral. All education is developed and carried out in terms of a purpose and program for freedom. And you are equipping your children for freedom in Jesus Christ to be servants of God. And those servants of God are always the best citizens anyway. They're always the people that contribute most to society and history has demonstrated this. The question is, who defines freedom? What is the end in view? And it's either going to be God's purpose and his word and his work, or it's an alien religious purpose. And so with this thought, I want to close now. Just give me two more minutes, because I'm really enjoying this, even if you're not. Because education cannot be neutral, it is a field of conflict. It's a battleground for the minds of the young. It is a dispute, moreover, because of the purpose of education and the nature of freedom. It is a dispute regarding the shape of the future. That is, education is eschatological. It asks, what is the future supposed to look like? How has God ordained the future? What is the teleology of history? It is an argument not just about the present, not just about specific freedoms in the present. It is a dispute about the future. As the philosopher Grant, the Canadian philosopher Grant pointed out, the constitutional state, he says, has an interest in limiting pluralism of belief, 
When the state has become secularized, it will quickly free itself of its use of the church. The religion of humanity and progress will reign monolithically in the schools. End quote. He understood that there is no neutrality in education. It is a conflict. And today we have seen what he said become absolutely true, that the religion of humanity, of progressivism, reigns monolithically in the schools. He added prophetically that, he says, assuming their religion to be self-evidently true to all men of goodwill, they are forceful in advocating that it should be the public religion. He called this religion the religion of progress, mastery, and power. Mastery and power require of the necessity the enforcement of the new public religion. That's what you're fighting. You're fighting the enforcement of the new public relation in the attempt to seize control of all of the apparatus in order to redefine the future. The redefinition of the family is not just a temporary, it's about the future. Redefinition of gender is about the future. The desire to control every aspect of education is about the shape of the future. Today, the compulsory age of education in Ontario is 6 through 18 years. 6 through 18, which outstrips even the UK, which requires only to the age of 16. There were Canadian provinces in the late 19th and early 20th century that resisted this, including the Maritimes and the Midwest. Some politicians in Alberta very strongly resisted. One of the last areas of Western Europe to adopt a compulsory system was England and Wales where the Elementary Education Act of 1870 paved the way by establishing regional school boards. Attendance was made compulsory from age 10 in 1880. Presently, in some Western nations, Germany, for example, you'll know this, home education is illegal. Hitler made it illegal. A crime for which you may be fined or imprisoned and your children taken from you. In parts of the UK today, certainly Wales, the state now demands the right to privately interview without their parents, homeschool children, to determine the appropriateness of their education. You know the battle is on. Furthermore, when returned to their families from their state education experience, many Christian parents are stunned to find their child has been alienated from the family alienated from the faith, taught a godless morality, and subsequently abandoned the church. In the United States, the most Christian country in the West in terms of church attendance, Lifeway Research found that 7 in 10 Protestants ages 18 to 30 who went to church regularly in high school stopped attending by the age of 23. A full one-third of those have not yet returned to the church by the age of 30. This means that about one-fourth of young Protestants have left the church in a single generation. This is supported by the Barna Group, which found six in ten young people will leave the church permanently or for an extended period starting at age 15. So if we could just reach our own children and retain them in the faith through Christian education in the home and in the Christian school, think how much better off the church would be in the next generation. This landscape is a far cry from what the Methodist minister Egerton Ryerson had in mind when he proposed non-denominational Christian schools funded by the state for Protestants in Canada. There can be absolutely no doubt that a social revolution has been completed in this country. All this is logical. It's to be expected when we recognize the myth of neutrality, the the context of education and its purpose, not just its content, cannot be 
neutral. The public schools today are religious institutions. Homeschool and Christian school education is therefore not simply your lifestyle choice. It isn't simply a personal preference. It's not just a prudent financial decision. Or not. It is, in fact, the defense of liberty. The defense of the truth, a moral imperative for Christians, and a manifesto and investment in the future for the glory of God. Your homeschool is on the front line in one of the most critical battlefronts in the history of the West. And I want to encourage you to be faithful to it. Thank you for listening to this message brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please feel free to share it with friends, but do not charge for or alter the material in any way without the express written consent of the EICC. Thank you.